Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to hear in this episode is a live recording of a session that took place at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival 2020 in January at the Digi Palace. Here it is. Namaskar. Thank you so much for being here and gracing us with your presence. I think it's a privilege to have you here at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival. So uh, I know a lot of you all are eagerly waiting. We have limited time. So um, Swami Ji has been a mystic. He's a monk. He's a tantric, and he's a writer. I was just having a brief chat with him before we came in here, and he says. He earns his living by writing books, and I found that very interesting, you know, because we're normally used to lots of donations, etc. But he said, "I just live by what I write," and he's actually written 14 books by now, yeah. right? Okay, so um, because I was going to be having this conversation with Swami Ji, I actually started reading his book, and I was just telling him that the first book, if truth be told, amongst memoir. is a fascinating autobiography of his journey of renunciation and uh, swami ji you know in today's world uh, we keep talking about ki hum kal yug mein reh rahe hain and you as a child of eight has this dream where you said god came to you in your dream and your entire thing was then for a tour in a life saying that i will have to meet you and um, you then sort of you went to australia at 18 and over the next i would say 10 12 years set up a multi million dollar software company but all the time detached that i'm going to give this up and if i'm going to renounce i need to have something to renounce what am i sacrificing otherwise and you stuck to that and at 30 you just gave it all up so i want you to just share with us the key points that you remember in that journey because that was quite quite a journey for people like me to read about and to get sure. inspired with so can we sorry we need the volume bit up can we have the volume up please one two one two can i do a little stuti with swami ji please please can i borrow please. your mic for a moment thank you i'm sorry we should have done this no 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 worries so we'll just call upon the divine mother and uh, to bless this festival and all of you and our beautiful nation and uh, then we'll I'll answer your question श्री विद्या शिव राम भाग निलयांकार मंत्रो चक्रंकितबिंदु मध्य वसतीमत्सभाजननी श्रीमज्जगन्मो श्री 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 श्
to the divine in you with whose grace we're all here right now this moment Narayani so the question was uh, I decided one day that I would give up and why did I give up or how could I give up at, at yes. 30 I think if you have ever lived in a rented house, mm -hmm. then you know your attachment to a rented home is very different to the home if you own it. Yes. If it's a rental property, you look upon it differently. A tap goes off, you say, I'm going to call the landlord. I'm not going to fix it myself. Right. You don't really see the dirty walls, the soiled walls the same way as you would see your own home. So that sense of ownership is not there. Yes, because that sense of detachment is there. Because you know, one day I have to move out of this home. That impermanence is at the root of detachment. As long as I can remember that I cannot have this body forever. Right. I cannot have this wealth forever. I cannot have my loved ones with me forever. My youth, my wealth, everything is going to wax one day. It's going right. to win one day, sorry. Everything is going to disappear one day. If I can keep that mindfulness, mm. detachment comes naturally. Because what is there to give up anyway? Once somebody asked Mahavira, oh. the founder of Jainism, this seeker said to Mahavira, what have you gained by renouncing? What has meditation or this life of austerity given you? What have you gained? He said, that's the greatest gain I've had. I've lost everything. I've lost everything. Yes. Okay. And by losing everything, I found that I could do without it. In fact, Socrates, you know, the Greek philosopher, used to stand in the middle of the market every single day. For hours, he would do the equivalent of window shopping. But nobody actually ever saw him buy anything. 
So they said to Socrates, why do you do this? Somebody so intelligent, so brilliant like you, why do you waste your time roaming on the streets, through the markets? He said, I look at all the things that are there in various shops and realize, my God, I don't need all of this. <laughs> okay. That my, there are so many things in the world that I don't need. And it's a fabulous thing, that liberation. Because we don't know how deeply we're attached to anything till we are separated from it. True, true. If, if I see a rubber band and I, looking at it, you cannot tell its strength. Yeah. When it's stretched, does it snap? Or how long can it stretch itself? That's when I know the strength of that band. Right. So when circumstances, people stretch us, mm -hmm. what happens then? Do we snap or do we stretch? That cannot be discovered unless we go through the rigors of life, I feel. Of life, okay. So, but at, <clears throat> so at 30, very, you know, you had actually gained a lot, but you were still disconnected. No, but what you're saying in terms of renouncing, uh, Swamiji, there are many people like, you know, you also had the Naga Baba you mentioned. And there are many people who, on their spiritual journey, do step back, they take different paths, etc. But I think the biggest struggle is with your own inner demons, right? <clears throat> your anger, your hatred, your greed, your lust, your need to just want more. And the insecurity that, I may step away, but my insecurity that will all go away one day, right? How do you battle that? Somebody asked uh, Buddha once, huh. they said to Buddha, do you not miss your previous lifestyle? Do you not miss all that luxury, that opulence, that those, those kingdoms, those people, those subjects you were ruling over? Do you not miss that? Now you are walking around with a begging bowl in your hand. Right. And Buddha said, tell me something. Can you eat the food you have just vomited? It doesn't matter how tasty or delicious that food might have been. The moment it goes down your throat, it becomes sour. Right. Krishna says those sukhas, which the instant gratification will always result in some pain eventually. Right. So, I'm not saying one must renounce the joys of life. Right. By all means, life is there to be lived. It must be lived fully. Every moment must be taken in fully. In fact, that's the least we can do for our lives, to live it fully. fully. To be grateful, to be graceful, to be kind, to be gentle. But the fact or the, the thinking that it is going to stay with me forever is sheer ignorance. In fact, that is the only difference between a mindful person and a not-so-mindful person. Hmm. A mindful person or an awakened person knows that it is not going to last. Take anything other than uh, your, um, you know, karma. Yes. Nothing is going to last. So what karma is the struggle? Is, is, it, yeah. yes, is it not better than to accept it? Yes. And then say, okay, this is the truth of my life. Mm. How do I be more graceful? How do I be more grateful? Right. How do I be happier? Right. We, can, we can live through this life by constantly complaining and brooding and, and sulking and skulking. Or we can say, look, this is what it is. 
I always say it doesn't matter at what stage of life you are in, hmm. you will have at least one difficult person in your life. Usually that's a spouse, but not always. <laughs> and he's a trigger for you, for your yes. growth? Usually yeah. there's at least one difficult person in our life. And we always think, I wish if this person wasn't there, my life would be so beautiful, life would be so fantastic. Right, so but, peaceful. <laughs> but all it takes is a bit of mindfulness to go back to that period when that person was not in your life. Were you happier? Were you actually completely stress-free? Something else was ruling our mind at that time. Right, right, right. They also say at times that the people who disturb us mirror to us qualities that in ourselves that we don't accept. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes, yes. Yeah. True. Okay. So, uh, Swami, you have kind of redefined monkhood. Uh, I can keep referring to the book because that's what I've been reading, where you speak about the fact that for self-realization, maybe you don't... It's not important that you step away from the world, even as a householder, if you're mindful, you know. Uh, you can begin the journey. Perhaps somewhere around the journey, you start moving further and further away from things that have brought you pleasure earlier. Um, I want to ask you that we keep talking about the present era as a world of Kalyog. You know, we say that there is so much of, um, so much of animosity, so much of hatred, so much of divisiveness today. How can we, within this noise, this clutter, uh, you know, the sense of being overwhelmed by these forces, how can one chart out a path, a path for yourself? that is more peaceful, that is more compassionate, that is kinder? I think <clears throat> there is a practical aspect to it. Yes. And then there is a spiritual aspect. At a practical level, I would say our mind is an incredibly powerful thing. Mm. Human mind is, is why we have grown, why we have progressed, why we have evolved. Evolved, yeah. So be careful about what we, feed, what we feed our minds with. So if I am going to feed it with distressing literature, with negative literature, with the kind of literature that aggravates my suffering, mm. then when I'm in my quiet moment, the same thing will keep on playing back, keep playing back in my head. I always say, to know how peaceful you are within, spend some time with yourself. Ekanta, solitude. Mm. Most people will get depressed very quickly in solitude. And if you are by yourself, with yourself, in your own company, without all the gadgets, without your laptop phone, without any book, just you with yourself, what happens then? Do you feel happy? Do you feel positive? Or do you feel bored? If you are bored in your own company, then I think I've said the rest. Then how can we expect the world to rejoice in our company and people are constantly then looking for people who can make them happy and that is the root cause of suffering when I think somebody else yes. is responsible for my feelings. Right. If I take responsibility for what I am feeling, I would be happy. I'm saying I'm feeling bad, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling emotional, I'm feeling sentimental, I am responsible for it, why? Right. So the practical aspect is we need to be careful what are we feeding our mind with. At a spiritual level, it's the evolution of one's very consciousness. Mm. Within 
within the seven plus billion people on the planet, we have 8.4 million different kinds of species. And I'm not talking about animals and birds and so on. Mm. I'm speaking about human beings. Some people have the consciousness of a lion. Some have the consciousness of a lion. Yes. Some people have the consciousness of a fox. All the foxes are very innocent beings, but somehow we we regard cunningness. With slyness. With, yes. yes. So some people have the, uh, the the consciousness of a cow, some of a deer, and so on. This evolution of consciousness is attained when I sit quiet, mm. or when I live my life mindfully. Because if I am mindful, at least I will know what I am after. Right. If you look at some of the greatest people, uh, the saints, whether that's Guru Nanak Dev or even Jesus Christ or Moses for that matter or some of our saints in, in this culture, they all spend at least some time in solitude. Absolutely, yes. Even Prophet Muhammad did. His realization came from there. Why? Because it's only when you're by yourself that you get the time to listen to yourself. Right. Otherwise, we are constantly listening to the chattering of the mind and the world around us. And I'll tell you my famous, uh, my favorite story. Huh, please. When Buddha gained awakening, he was walking and two people stopped him. They said to Buddha, are you God? Buddha said, there is no God. No, I'm not God. There is no God. You must be some celestial being then, a Gandharva. He said, no, I'm not a Gandharva. Oh, you must be a saint. No, I'm not a saint, Buddha said. Well, they said, there's something different about you and us. We look like mangoes sucked dry. And you look so radiant. There has to be some difference between you and I. Right. Buddha said, of course. I didn't say there is no difference. There is a difference. And the difference is, you are sleeping and I am awake. Buddha means awake. Yanisha sarvabhuta nam tasyam jagrati sanyami. Yasyam jagrati bhutani sanisha pashyatumane. When the whole world is wide awake, Khantai Krishna says, the yogi sleeps. And when, when the yogi is wide awake, the whole world is sleeping because when are we awake? When we have a need to be fulfilled or a desire to be fulfilled. What happens when the tummy is full? The first thing that happens is we feel sleepy. Right. So when you are full internally, when you are content, at that time, everything is okay. Life is fine. You could not care less. Because this world is going to have opinions about you. Some people will say good things. Some people will say bad things. We cannot stop that. We don't have to stop it. We shouldn't stop it. I mean, let them say what they want to say. How does that change my world? Right, right. Somebody says he's a saint. Okay, thank you. Somebody says he's a sinner. All right, where do I meet you? You know, that right. kind of <laughs> <laughs> I was actually just going to come to that, Swamiji. I work a lot with young people. Right. And I've seen that mental health is... It's almost an epidemic now across the world. I mean, the number of young people, especially in their teens, who are going through issues of anxiety. And anxiety at different levels, you know, some also very depressed. But the whole sense of judgment, of feeling that, you know, uh, people are looking at me, I'm from, whether it's the physical body shaming, to I'm not good enough. 
I'm a failure, you know. And uh, I think a lot of people, you know, in my generation, we, I've had friends saying, oh, but you know, their mind is weak. We didn't have those issues earlier. Maybe we didn't have the vocabulary to express it. I don't know, you know. So I want to ask you, I mean, is there more anxiety today? And what is it that one could tell a young person, you know? Uh, you spoke about solitude. Does one need to get into a practice of maybe five minutes of solitude and then that lead to a meditative state of mind? What would be a practical thing to be able to reach out to a young person? Good question. I think there is more anxiety today than it's ever been. And why would that And be? I think it's because of this uber-connected world. Okay. Because now we are reading what is happening all over the world. I'm seeing people on Facebook who are always holidaying, always partying, and we think, wow, everybody's life is perfect yes. except my own. And this false view of the world, everybody's smiling on Instagram, everybody's looking dazzling on, on, on those things. Uh, thank God I'm, I am not on any social media. It's, it's a price I'm willing to pay. I agree completely with you there. Neither am I. So that puts us in comparison. The moment I am going to compare myself with others, I am setting myself up for misery. That is guaranteed. Because today I might compare myself to somebody who's not as fortunate and I might feel great. Right. Tomorrow I will be seeing somebody who's a lot more fortunate or at an advantageous position than I am and I will feel bad. One, I believe there is more anxiety today than it's ever been. Two, I also believe that privileged life brings anxiety. Sometimes people ask me what was going through my mind when I was in Sydney or Australia. I said survival. I had to survive, and there was no anxiety in there. There was stress, there was anxiety of paying my bill, but that anxiety of life is not good, what are people thinking about me? I didn't have the time to even think about that. Right. So when I meet villagers near my ashram, children or grown-ups or adults, nobody has ever come to me and said, I'm feeling quite depressed. They don't even know what that <coughs> is. True. They're saying, will my harvest be okay this season? Will I be able to retain the roof over my head? Mm. Uh, will my child be okay? They're suffering from brain tumor or something like that. So it's a very subjective thing. I mean, a seed needs to push against the ground for it to sprout. A, a, a caterpillar needs that struggle from that um, pupa, pupa from to caterpillar to come out of its cocoon and turn into a butterfly. Today, a lot of the kids, we are sheltering them too much. Absolutely. So unless we, unless we don't allow that struggle, they won't really know what life is because life doesn't really care how privileged one may be. Yeah. Life is, a teacher I, I read somewhere, a teacher is someone who um, gives you a lesson and then uh, gives you a test. Right. Life is the opposite. It gives you a test yes. first and then it gives you a lesson. And sees what you can learn out of that. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So if children today, um, they are also under a lot of pressure hmm. because the amount of inequity in the world, the amount of disparity between the very rich and the very poor it's has growing. grown yeah. yes. to unimaginable proportions. Yes. And that is not a good thing for the world. Right. 
1% of the people or 2% of the people control 98% of the wealth. And that's not a good thing. Because human beings are inherently self-centered. We are selfless, we are caring by default, but first we are self-centered. First we want to survive, thrive, be famous, be known, be rich and so on, yeah. and then I'll care about other people. Right. And that's not a good thing, that inequity. I mean, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, the richest person in your village will just have a bigger house or a few more horses, yeah. or maybe one car. You, that person would not be flashing his Mont Blanc pen or Versace suit or anything like that. Oh, those 10 yeah, cars, yeah. Exactly. Now we can flash our wealth. Yes. And if I can flaunt my wealth, then I'm going to create those desires in other people as well. And I'm not saying desires are right or wrong. As long as I know there is a price to be paid. Hmm. If I want a desire fulfilled, I have a I need to pay a price. I want to grow a business, I need to give less time to the family. I Absolutely. want to work more, I'll have less time for sleeping. As long as I accept the price I am paying, then it's my choice, then I can't complain. Swamiji, um, I want to ask you that time and time again in my conversation with young people, I've seen, you know, maybe we had a little core of faith, perhaps we didn't question so much when we were growing up. You know, we accepted, you can call it sanskar or whatever, but today uh, I'm constantly, you know, this thing comes up that, who is God? Is there a God? Who is God? Is God an idea? Is it an idea that's passed its time? And uh, it's something that I find very interesting and I'm going to ask you this question, okay. you know, from your belief that if a young person is asking you, I mean, one is, you know, your own personal connection is, who is God for you? Okay. And uh, if you have to demystify that right. for a young person, what would you say? Okay, I'll try. Okay. Um, there's one thing you mentioned is God an idea that's passed its time. Yeah. That reminds me of something, as you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the German yes. uh, thinker, famously said, God is dead. And uh, in a wall in Germany, his quote was written in a public washroom, or outside a public graffiti, God is dead. Right. And below that was written Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. Hmm. Below that somebody scribbled, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> <laughs> so he is actually dead. And when we talk about the concept of death, we usually say, as soon as somebody leaves their body, we say so and so person is dead. Their legacy may be alive, their work may be alive and flourishing, but we say, if somebody's name is Ram Prakash, he, he breathes his last, we say, Ram is dead. Right. But is Ram really dead? Anyway, I don't mean to get into that deep philosophy. In terms of your question directly to me, yes. what God is. The heat in fire is God. The coolness in water is God. That, uh, that coldness in ice is God. That warmth in sun is God. That beauty of a gentle breeze that just simply puts you at ease is God. My definition of God, thank you. My definition of God is the inexplicable essence of all beautiful things in the world. 
I can give it whatever name I want to give it. I can give it whatever form I want to give it. And it's, we are living in one of those weird times where the moment you use the word God, an educated mind thinks you are either a crook or you're ignorant. The moment you use the word God, they say, oh, here is somebody who's going to now condition us with his thinking, or here is somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, or here is somebody who hasn't realized the truth. Right. The reality is, most of what is happening in our lives, we don't control. I can control sitting with you here, but I can't control this audience. Right, right. Uh, they could be creating a lot of ruckus right now. Yeah. Now, we cannot control what's going on around us. Mm. I cannot control an earthquake, no matter how advanced a scientific mind I may have. Mm. I cannot control the bushfires. I cannot control floods and so on. I can mitigate my risk. I can manage them, but I cannot really control them. I'm not saying somebody else up there is calling the shots. I think that is doing great injustice to the, the glory of human mind. I simply believe that the universe is out there in immense magnitude. Right. Just look at the scale of this massive, infinite universe. This universe is in scriptures called Purushottama, right. the ultimate being. If you were to magnify put your skin under some microscope and magnify, eventually you will see some cells floating around in the space. Right. The way I see human beings connected in all life forms and animate, inanimate objects connected in the world is, each one of those is a cell in the universal body. From a distance, they see floating around. And whatever we do think has an impact on every other person in this world. Mm. Each planet, is simply a cell in the universe. Absolutely, yes. So we carry within ourselves a microcosm. We have the same Milky Way, the arteries, and we have the same, these uh, hair follicles and so on on our body, the way stars are in, this, in the sky. To gain that oneness with the universe mm. is realizing the kingdom of God. That is awakening in my view. That is what God is in my view. Okay. Whether somebody says, uh, has a form, doesn't have a form, it becomes immaterial then. Because it is no longer about what you think is right. It is beyond thought. It is a feeling. We know when somebody falls in love, there is serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin that gets released. But can I evoke feelings of love by injecting those neurotransmitters in somebody? No. I can make them feel good at the most, but I cannot really make them feel loved. Right. So science is explaining everything. Science has a reason and explanation for everything. I wish our religions operated like science. We would have made such remarkable progress. Hats off to the scientific progress of this world. They, there is a humility in science that is missing in religion. I wish religion had the same humility. Thank you. Thank you. I wish religion had the same humility as science does. A scientist says, look, I've reached, I've arrived at this conclusion, here is what I did, here's my paraphernalia, you go through the same thing, you'll get the same result. In religion, we say, no, first you believe what I'm saying to you. Right. And then if you don't get it, it's your fault. Right. 
So science starts with a hypothesis and then there's a spirit of inquiry. Yes, and science yes. is open to independent validation right. and verification. There is no mumbo jumbo there. But in religion we say, oh, you don't believe in this book, you are going to hell. Right. This is so ludicrous in my view. Right. This is so uh, remote from the idea of God, you know, which is our deepest essence. So it's a feeling what I was getting at. I can evoke, I can inject those neurotransmitters, but I cannot make anybody feel loved. Right. Similarly, I can give all the logic and rationale, but I cannot bring that heart to open up to the existence or presence of the divine, whether you call it the universe, divine or anything. That is an individual journey. Right. Whether Einstein found it in his lab, Buddha found it in a tree, or somebody else found it in books, maybe somebody else found it in their family, that's okay. So it's an intangible experience that it elevates you, opens your consciousness. How would you define it or it's so, indefinable? So one of the most beautiful things that, that happen when you are kind of more mindful and you are one with the universe, all feelings of negativity and hatred go away. You cannot feel any hate or anger towards anybody. And that's a very sweet space to be in in your life because that's gone. Now you, you don't have that negativity. You don't have that hatred for anybody. Everything is okay. But is it because you see the divine in everyone? I mean, how does that happen? That is the beginning. Okay. You see the divine, you feel the divine. You know, in Sufism they say, La Sharika Allahu. That he's one without the second. Ekam Brahmadvityam Nasti. There is no second here. Sometimes people say, this person came, I, I feel very, uh, this ch young child, I feel uh, very, uh, he said, um, fearful, fearful when I'm alone. Right. I said, uh, it's impossible. It's impossible to be afraid when you're alone. Clearly you're thinking, I said, what is the fear? He said, I just feel there is maybe a ghost or, or somebody. I said, clearly you're thinking there is somebody else. You're not alone, that means. Right, right. You're already thinking there's a presence of somebody else. Yoga ratova, bhoga ratova. Sanga ratova, sanga vahina. Yasyam brahmani ramate chittam nandati 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 eva. That you can be in yoga, you can be in the world in uh, all the joys and bhoga, you can be attached or you can be detached. But the one who is walking with the consciousness of that union with the divine is somebody who's eternally at peace. Now, I don't mean to make it uh, very glorifying, some mystical thing out there. It's a very practical thing. And it is, I am responsible for what I am feeling. I may not be responsible for what is happening to me. There's a difference between the two. Sometimes we walk into somebody else's karmic field and we suffer or we at least are in pain because of the karma of the other people or other person. If I lose a loved one, I am not responsible for losing that loved one. But if I, I think I'm suffering and I'm paying the price, I am responsible for that. Feeling. If you walk into someone else's karmic field, is that not all part of your own karma also? Not necessarily, not necessarily. so. Because I do believe there is extraordinary randomness operating in the universe. Right. Terrible things happen to good people all the time. Okay. 
and good things happen to bad people all the time. Okay. I think if we, if we say to somebody, look, you're suffering because you did something wrong, something bad in your life, I think that is just empathy torn to shreds. That is being so harsh on the other person when we say, look, you're suffering because, hey, you know, you did something bad something, in your past yeah. life. Who's to say? Who knows? Maybe that person just suffering. If, if, if I am in a region which is, uh, let's say, prone to earthquakes and, uh, and I'm buried under some debris, I can say, yes, I'm suffering because I did something bad or maybe I just happened to be there at there, the wrong yeah. place at the wrong time. We've seen a lot of people as, uh, who are not intelligent by any stretch of imagination, who possess very ordinary intellects and yet they rise to the top of their game. Sometimes it's just being at the right place at the right, right time. time. Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes nature makes that happen. And it's not based on anything. I think we can find theories and reasons and so on, but True. some things just happen in life. Swamiji, you uh, constantly refer to the celestial mother, right? right? And uh, even now, we invoked the mother before we started. Uh, and you have written a beautiful description of your first vision or the first time you met her, right? Um, would you like to share a bit of that with us? Or I know you told me that would take you somewhere else otherwise. So, uh, But also the fact that it's the mother, I mean, you know, when we talk about God, uh, it, it's, uh, it's just a force or an energy or an experience. But for you, you have given it a form for yourself yes. as the celestial mother. Right. How did that come about? So, one of my life's core values is truth. In uh, January, on the 1st of January 2011, I promised myself I will never utter a lie, whatever be the price. And so I will tell you truthfully why Divine Mother first. And then briefly about my experience, whatever I can share. If I share a lot, then I need time to myself. Um, I think I may have touched upon it, but when I left my physical mother, I thought, what's the greatest gift I could give her? What's the best I could do? Now that I'm away and she's really wondering where I am because I never told anybody where I was going, uh, so cruelly I left everybody behind, uh, which in hindsight might be a foolish way of doing things, but uh, we all do dumb things It was in like life. the Buddha, yes. actually, now that you mentioned Buddha. So he True. left too, right? True. So... I thought, let me pray to God in the form of mother. Because there is a saying, you know, Kuputra jayet kvachidapi kumatana bhavati. That a son may be a bad son, but a mother is never really a bad mother. Even if she doesn't do anything for you, still she gave you birth. She brought you here. So this was my gratitude to my mother. Okay. And in terms of my experience with her, I think it, I would need 
people who are devoted to Divine Mother to understand my experience because it's very subjective experience. It has no objective reality. If I share that experience, it would at the best will sound like a hallucination to, okay. to, to, to somebody. I need somebody who's in love. I don't want uh, a psychiatrist. Right. Right? You see the difference? Yes. So if somebody's in love, with the notion of, of God, with such a person, if I sat down and I narrated the glories of Divine Mother, hmm. it would be very different. Here, it would just be flowing from this mind, which is pointless, I feel, because it is doing injustice to this audience to bore them with what my experience was. But I can tell you I one guess, thing, yeah. though. I can tell you one thing with absolute conviction and certainty. I already shared with you my definition of the divine. God exists. And uh, somebody who doesn't believe in the presence of God, I'm okay with that as long as they are kind. I always feel yes, yes. whatever makes you a kinder human being, it's a good philosophy. It's a good path, walk it. You know? Absolutely. The world is better off with non-religious kind people than with religious fanatics. Look at all the... Absolutely, yes. The, the violence that is happening in the world. Religious people are at the root of it. They should be cleaned first, I right. feel. Um, but So I was telling you, God exists, and to a, a devotee, the advent of God is same like the, the growing of a tree out of the ground. You put a seed and suddenly you see this tree growing. It's not eating the mud, the earth. Put it in a pot and the earth is still there. If you're giving it 200 grams of two or uh, you know, 20 whatever liters of water in four days, five days, it's not growing at that pace, most of it is evaporating. What is causing the growth of that plant? Air, sunlight, that chlorophyll process, or what is it? Right. Similarly, when you have the seed of devotion, the universe takes on a form for you. And it's incredibly liberating, because then you realize you have the whole universe with you. What do you need what from this need? Yes. world? Then. Being kind, what is being kind? Isn't it just being human? That's your essence, isn't it? So true. And I, I think I recently wrote or spoke, sometimes people come to me and say, why is bad, this bad thing happening to me? I've been so kind to everybody. I've always done good things to people. And I say, okay, so you should be doing bad things to people? <laughs> is that a good enough a qualification that you've always been good to people? I think that's expected. Right. So, being kind is understanding that the person across perhaps hasn't had the same advantage that you had in your life and therefore, what is the best I can do for this individual? It is making a difference to one person as opposed to trying to make a difference to the whole world. Right. And recently, um, I have this thing I do uh, everywhere I... Every time I check out of my hotel, I leave a note, a flower, and some tip for the housekeeping, and I lock the room, and I've checked out. I always 
feel joyous, what would they discover when they find that note and that right. money? I think if it was just the note, they won't be as joyous. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when they find that money, what would there be? And I was telling Swamiji when we were checking out from Delhi Marriott, I have this thing that everybody give them some tip, whoever is serving. And I was telling this very simple math, arithmetic to them. I said, we only give two or three hundred rupees per person. Right. Right? You spend ten thousand rupees on a dinner and you are spending much less on tips. So there were, let's say, twenty people, you spend two thousand or three thousand rupees there. I said, imagine those two hundred rupees. They don't sound too much at all. Yeah. But if ten people even or twenty people show them that kindness every day, their kids will study in better schools. Their parents will not die early because they can't afford Medicare. They will also live in air-conditioned homes. They will also have better roofs over their head. So it all adds up. Mm. If I think as a customer, oh, I don't have to give 200 rupees, what will this do? If 20 people thought the same thing, that person is poorer. Because in this absolutely. country, yeah. in particular, yeah, there is a lot of exploitation. Yes. I always tell the difference between India and some of the Western countries, here, a security guard will never be dining in, in the dining hall. Mm. They can't afford it. Their one month's salary is one meal there. But in the West, it's not like that. Yes. A security on guard one table. day, yes, yes, will over the weekend bring in his family or her family to dine in the same hotel they work in. Yeah. So when we see somebody who's not as fortunate, we can, one view is, hey, they just did it, uh, what's to do? I mean, they didn't study or it's their job, they're just doing their job, but they're not being paid how much they should be paid for that job. Sure. And I feel so bad for the dogs uh, that are in front of every hotel where they're sniffing cars whole day, these poor creatures uh, are just sniffing uh, diesel and fumes. And after every sniff, they don't even get a reward. They don't get a pat, they don't get a chewy, they don't get anything, it's so terrible. What bombs are they trying to sniff? I have no idea. So that kindness is putting a stop to the bad you see around you, but one person, one thing at, at a time. time. Because if I see wrong happening and I choose to be quiet, I'm supporting the wrong. And that's Ellie Wiesel said, you know. Absolutely. It's being complicit, it's being passive, but I'm supporting it. Exactly. If, that means I'm, I'm endorsing. If I choose to be silent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think maybe through the kindness, one could connect with whatever we call God. Exactly. Right? It's, it's a way to get there, right? Without kindness, there is no God. Without kindness, there may be religion, there may be theory, there may be philosophies, there may be protests, there may be organizations, but there is no God. In fact, one day, angel was sitting with the Satan. Okay. And... Uh, there was this person on this planet Earth, shining, radiant, and so many people were flocking to him. And the angel said to Satan, he said, aren't you worried? Aren't you threatened? Mm. Why, Satan said, why would I be threatened? My existence is imperishable. He said, look, this person has found the truth. And truth will destroy you. This person has found the truth. He has realized the truth. And Satan laughed. Satan said, uh, I am absolutely not worried. At all, huh? 
He has realized the truth. I will organize the truth and truth will disappear. Wow. So the moment I put industrial thinking or institutional thinking into a path, the pathless path, so to speak, right. truth goes away and only dry rituals remain behind. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepperbytes is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Lay Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Laksh Datta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.